Welcome. It's nice to be here again. I first uh, stood here in the days of Derek Prime, and I have been pleased to be in the chapel a few times over the over the years. How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? After I moved to New Zealand, I was checking into a motel when I was travelling one time. And the woman kind of gave him my key and she looked at me and said, would you like some sex? And I was a bit taken aback because this isn't the kind of thing you get asked in Scotland when you're checking into a, to a motel. So I just kind of spluttered a little bit and said, I'm sorry. And she said, Look, would you like some sex? And I am. Um, I was really confused. You know, I thought... What's going on here? Is this how life ends, being propositioned by middle-aged women in motels? Is this kind of, is this where my life is now? And I don't know why I said this, but my answer was, look, I'm sorry, I'm Scottish. <laughs> so she, um, at this point, she kind of, she lost patience with me and came kind of striding, striding towards me. And I kind of backed up and banged into the door. And she kind of leaned down and took out some rubbish uh, sacks to give me for my, my room. Um, if you're from Morningside, you'll understand this. But she was, she was actually offering me some sacks rather than some sex. And I got completely the wrong end of the, the stick. I have a real problem with my vowels in New Zealand because they push all their vowels. So their A becomes E, their E becomes I. They talk about eggs instead of eggs, and it's New Zealand rather than New Zealand. Um, and this is a problem because my wife has a name which is much more familiar in Scotland than in New Zealand, which is Ailsa, which starts and ends with a letter that nobody understands me when I say it. Because when I say A, which to me is very obviously the first letter of the alphabet, they think I'm saying E, which is the fifth letter of the alphabet. So we've had all kinds of problems when we're trying to explain my wife's name. Is it Elsie? Is it Elitha? Is it, no, it's Ailsa. And I've wound up spelling it, um, and I spell it phonetically. So the other day I was on the phone to somebody, Ailsa, no, it's Ailsa. No, Ailsa. Um, that's A, he goes E, and I said, no, A for apple. There's this kind of pause on the phone. Apple doesn't start with an E. <laughs> yes. Thank you. But how we survive as a minority is a critical question for us as the church in the world. And I guess over time, there have been a number of different approaches to being a minority in a majority culture. You can try to take it over by colonizing it, like the British Empire. You will do things our way. You can become assimilated into it, whereby you lose your distinctiveness, like the Borg. And I'm not going to explain that to you if you don't understand it. Or you can withdraw to the margins and become isolated from the majority culture and just do your own thing in your own way. Like Hibs fans or something like that. And you've seen through the history of the church people going about 
that very, adopting those very approaches. So you um, have the moral majority in America trying to impose their will on broader society. You have the liberal agenda where people just adopt and compromise and give an unbelieving world less and less to disbelieve in. Or you have an isolationist mentality where people withdraw to the edges and don't participate and don't see any connection between their faith and the wider culture that they're placed in. In Jeremiah 29, we have presented for us, I think, a fourth approach to living as a minority in a majority culture, which is stunningly countercultural and which I believe is one of the key paradigms for us as we think about being the people of God in the world today. And being the people of God in the world today is at the heart of what mission is about for all of us, whether we're here or somewhere else in the world. So if you'd like to turn to Jeremiah 29, we'll read the letter to the exiles from verse 4 of 29. That's on page 789 in the Old Pew Bibles and on 553 in the shinier new ones. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find you, find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now this letter is written by Jeremiah, who is back in Jerusalem. He is writing to the people who have been carried off into exile in Babylon. And he is writing in the context of the unthinkable having happened to the people. They always thought that God would keep Jerusalem. They thought that their identity as being his people was tied up with his promise around the land and around the temple. And it is devastating that the Babylonians have come and have sacked the temple and have carried people off into captivity. And in Babylon, we have prophets who are explaining, it's all going to be okay. You'll be back home in time for Christmas, or the equivalent. 
And Jeremiah writes to them and says, this is not what is going on. You are not going to be back quickly. You need to orientate how you live in the light of God's promises and God's purposes in history, which are being worked out through his people at this time. So he basically tells them to do two things. He tells them to get involved and he tells them to live with hope. Those two things together are absolutely crucial for us being the people of God and living as a minority in a way that has an impact where God has put us. Sometimes said in the past that Christians were so heavenly minded that there were no earthly use. I also think there are some Christians who are so earthly minded that there are no heavenly use. And the challenge here is to be earthly minded and heavenly minded. It's to get involved in the city. To recognize that they are not there by accident. Notice three times in Jeremiah 29, God affirms that it is him who has carried them into exile. It is God who is working out his purposes using the Babylonians. And far from living as a disgrace on the margins, this community in exile, this community of faith, is to get stuck into Babylon. Notice what they're to do in verse 5. They're to build houses. They're to settle down. They're to plant gardens and eat what they produce. They're to start planning for the future and making a difference where they are. They're to marry and have sons and daughters so that they too may have sons and daughters. They're to increase in number there. To seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Absolutely astonishing to seek the peace and prosperity of this great enemy of God's people. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. They are to get involved in Babylonian society. They are to be salt and light there. They are to seek the welfare of the environment that they have been put into. How they behave there matters. God's agenda for them there is that they get involved in the society that they've been carried into. But they are not to become Babylonian. They are to live there with a future hope. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise. They are to live in Babylon, recognizing that Babylon is not their home, that God in the future is going to come and take them back to Jerusalem. So they live engaged, but they live with this countdown clock ticking. 70 years, 69 years, 68 years. Your time in Babylon is running out. This isn't where you belong. You don't become Babylonian. You live here with hope. Hope of a future return. 
Now, do you see how that works out in practice for the church in the world today? When some people say, well, what's the point of getting involved? What value has your job got? Why get involved in your community? Why care about the environment? Why care about poverty? When what matters is people's salvation, their souls, their eternity. And at the other extreme, you get people that say, why do you keep banging out about the Bible and people's souls and about eternity and about hell? What matters is there's suffering people in front of us now. And if we want to be Jesus to them, we need to get on and, and help them. And it's not an either-or thing. It's a both-and thing. We need to live with compassion and engagement, but with that perspective on eternity. The children's uh, presentation was on the, the work of the Vine Trust. One of the, the things I do is I'm a director of the, the Vine Trust. So I've been to Peru a couple of times and I've been to, I've been to Kusi that they were talking about there. The Vine Trust is involved in Peru, working with partner organizations trying to create a healthcare system for 100,000 people in the Amazon basin. We're trying to work with street children and the dispossessed to give them education, to provide a context for them to be loved and to, to grow. We're trying to, to develop the economy to produce greater prosperity in Peru. But we do so from a perspective of Christian hope. You might have heard of the, the ships that we have on the Amazon. They're not named by accident. The Amazon Hope. We're engaged, but have that perspective on wanting to see people's lives changed as they meet God through some of the people who come and some of the people who are, who are there. The early Christians used to greet each other with the word Maranatha. They were involved with people, but they had a clear picture of Jesus' return. don't know how you feel about the prospect of Jesus coming back again. I remember talking to some Christian youth workers a few years ago, and I said to them, if Jesus was to come back um, before you got married... Because I think three of them were, were getting married in the coming year. Would you feel that God had, um, had cheated you somehow and you'd missed out on something really important in life? And they scratched their heads and they were Christian youth workers and they knew the answer to the question should be, no, not at all. I'd far rather Jesus came back. But they also knew they'd pretty well thought out wedding plans that they were looking forward to. See, the problem is the more we've got invested in the world, the more the threat of Jesus, or the more the, the prospect of Jesus' return is threatening to us. Whereas if we suffer persecution and live on the margins, Jesus' return is much more comforting to us. It's very easy to live in Babylon and become Babylonian, to lose sight of that future hope. 
the people did increase in numbers significantly. But when the first wave went back, there were many who chose to stay in Babylon because they had basically become Babylonian through their time, through their time in exile. How do we live as strangers in the world? It's a notion that Peter picks up in his, uh, in his letter where he starts off in chapter 1 saying, To God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadonia, Asia, and Bithynia. He talks to them as strangers. He picks it up in verse 11 of chapter 2 talking about them being the people of God. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live as strangers in a way that points people to God. But remember, there's a future. Notice Peter mentioning there, glorifying God on the day he visits us. We're to live differently in the world, but we're to live with that hope. Those early Christians greeted each other with the word Maranatha. The Lord is coming back. So they understood they lived in these last days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return. And they sought to encourage each other with the hope of Jesus' return as they sought to be obedient and live as the people of God at that time. The verse in Jeremiah 29 that you've probably heard the most is verse 11. Um, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's the kind of verse that people give you when you um, are deemed surplus to requirements in a relationship or in a work context or when things aren't going very well for you. People seek to encourage you. It's okay. God knows the plans he has for you. There'll be some other boy coming along who's much nicer than the one who's just chucked you. There'll be a better job around the corner. Um, you'll get a new house um, even though you missed that one that you really, really liked. And it's great to encourage each other, but the encouragement of this verse isn't individual, it's corporate. It's God saying to the people of God, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to fail you. I know what is going on in the world. I am in control of human history. Your challenge is to live together as the people of God where you are to seek me now and to realize there will be a time in the future where you will seek me more wholeheartedly, where I will come and return and take you home. And if you read um, Daniel chapter 9, you'll see Daniel, when the 70 years are up, praying in response to this, seeking to seek God, to seek God's face and not God's hand. 
as he recognizes that it's time for God to do a new thing in the life of the people. I had a text from Susan MacDonald yesterday saying that she was having lunch in an underground place, which is why she hadn't got my phone call. It sounded very exotic, you know, sort of having lunch in an underground place. But the great thing about being the people of God is that we are part of an underground movement on whom rests the future of humanity. We are called to live as a minority engaged sharing God where we are, but with that future hope there to be in the world, but not of it. This is a poem that talks about how we get it wrong sometimes. In it, not of it, the statement was made, as Christian one faced the world much afraid. In it, not of it, the call was made clear, but Christian one got something stuck in his ear. For not in it or of it was the thing that he heard, and knowing the world to be strange and absurd, he welcomed the safety of pious retreat and went to the church lunch for something to eat. Now Christian too, he knew what to do. He'd show those fundies a thing or two. How will the world ever give Christ a try if we don't get in there and identify? So in it and of it, he said in his car, as he pulled in and stopped at a popular bar, I'll tell them the truth just as soon as I'm able to get myself out from under this table. Along comes Christian three jogging for Jesus in witnessing sweats made of four matching pieces. His earphones are blasting a hot Christian tune about how the Lord is coming back soon. Not in it, but of it, he goes down the hill and stops in for a bite at the Agape Grill. Like the gold on the chain of his God Loves You bracelet, he can have the world without having to face it. Meanwhile, up in heaven, they lament these conditions that come from changing a few prepositions. Not in it or of it, Christian one thought, but who in the world will know that he's not? In it and of it, thought Christian too, but who in the world will know that he knew? Not in it, but of it, thought Christian three, but who in the world watches Christian TV? Jesus turns away, shaking his head. In it, not of it, wasn't that what I said? We need to live joined up lives where we are the people that God is calling us to be in our workplace, in our community, in our family, in our church gatherings. In, um, in Hamilton, which is in the, the north of New Zealand, there's a sign outside the rugby stadium saying, this is where we worship, which is an interesting comment on the idolatry of sport in the New Zealand um, psyche. And I was talking to a couple of ministers about it, and they said, oh, it's terrible. We should have that sign outside the church. And I said, well, fair enough, but if you're going to have a sign like that in your church somewhere... The place that I would have it is above the door that people walk out of at the end of a service on a Sunday. Because most of our worship is done out there. It's done in the classroom. It's done in the factory. It's done in the office. It's done in the community. It's done in the hospital. It's done in the shop. And we need to live out there in exile. Knowing that we belong to God and we're going to heaven. We have the hope of eternity in our hearts. But we engage where we are. 
One of the things we've got going in New Zealand recently is something called Catalyst, which is a, a network of graduates who in different ways are trying to make an impact where they are. So we have a, a little group of town planners who are Christians, who are trying to encourage each other to think about what town planning means from a biblical perspective. We have uh, a couple who are involved in the fashion industry, one of whom is doing our internship at the, the moment. And she's trying to think through what the, the Christian faith has to do with fashion. And it's fascinating considering how much time people have spent getting dressed over the last 2,000 years and how much time certainly some of us spend thinking about it, how little there is been written from a Christian perspective on fashion. So we're trying to, to equip and encourage people to live where they are in a way that makes a difference. One summer when I was at university, I worked with a civil and transport engineer. And the guy opposite me had become a Christian that day. Uh, earlier on that year, through his geography class. And he was explaining to me how he'd become a Christian. That there was a guy in his honours geography class who he knew was a Christian. And one day, the subject was glaciation. And the Christian student asked a question about why this was being taught when the most up-to-date research was contradicting what was being said by the lecturer. So they had a little bit of a discussion and the lecturer went and got the senior lecturer and the pair of them came and spoke back and forth and they decided to go and get the professor. So the professor came down, it must have been a quiet day in the geography department, the professor came down and the professor engaged with this, with this student talking about glaciation for about 20 minutes as the, the whole class, the lecturer and the senior lecturer sat and, sat and listened. And at the end the professor said, yeah I see your point, I think you're right. Um, we, need to, we need to change the curriculum. We'll get on to that. Thanks for helping us, helping us work this through. Um, and the guy that I was talking to said, I just sat there and I thought, flipping heck, if he's thought this much about glaciation, I need to get hold of a copy of the Bible. Because he's got to have thought about that as well. And that was when he started reading the Bible and how, how he came to faith. But he came to faith because he saw somebody who was a student being the best student they could be and engaging in geography to the best degree that they could. That's the challenge for us, is how we seek the welfare of the bank or the hospital or the factory, the company, the department. How we engage, but in a way that helps them to see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven, that we're salt and light there. Finish with, with one more story. When um, the first mission I ever did as a, was at St. Andrew's University. And when I was there, I was getting my hair cut. And the guy who was cutting my hair said to me, what are you doing in St. Andrew's? And I said, well, I'm here on a mission. Which I immediately thought sounded stupid because I sounded like a secret agent or something. <laughs> He said, oh, what's, what's that then? And I said, well, um, there's a lot of people who haven't thought about who Jesus is for themselves. So we're really trying to help them think about who Jesus is. Oh, are you a Christian then? And I don't know what it is about that question, but when someone has a pair of scissors at your neck, you kind of think, 
twice about it, and I said, yeah. He said, oh, so am I. And he told me how he'd become a Christian. He'd been working at a hairdressing shop in Dundee, and the girl next to him was a Christian. She said she used to chat to me, she used to lend me things to read, used to invite me to come to things, and never, never went. But she was, she was, she was always there. So there was something about her that was different. That after a while, it really began to irritate me. So she start, he started persecuting her, started stealing her tips and sweeping his hair underneath her chair and however else you persecute someone in a hairdressing shop. I'm not, not sure exactly. One Saturday, he went in, having been out um, on a bit of a bender the night before, still hungover. Girl was there, cheerful as ever. Um, special service happening at church tomorrow night. I wonder if you're interested in coming. And something inside me just snapped. Knocked all her stuff off the shelf, tipped her chair over, slapped her across the face, went storming out of the shop. Lost his job, obviously. That night, he was sitting at home, and the telephone rang. It was this girl from work. Uh, hello. I was just wondering about the service tomorrow night. <laughs> so I didn't have the heart to say no. And it was there that he um, gave his life to the Lord. Now that was somebody who I don't even know their name. But they were there faithfully sharing Jesus with the person that God had put next to them in that hairdressing shop. Day after day, week after week, month after month, at cost to themselves. But they were committed. Committed to being engaged. Committed to living in exile, but to sharing the hope of Jesus. And that's the great opportunity that we all have as we think about mission together. Where has God put us? Why has God put us there? What does it mean for us to be engaged there in a way that we are salt and light and point people to God through how we do what we do and through what we say? It's a great opportunity to be the people of God in the world. To be engaged, but to have that hope. Jesus is coming back. If the good news is being hidden, it's only hidden from those who are being lost. Let us encourage each other and support each other as we go out to worship. That we might indeed worship and serve the Lord and love the people in all the different places that he has called us to be, to his glory, until he takes us home.